Cheers to the finest crew in Starfleet. Engage. Welcome to the Greatest Generation Deep Space Nine. It's a Star Trek podcast by a couple of guys who are a little bit embarrassed to have a Star Trek podcast. I'm Adam Pranica. I'm Ben Harrison. Season's greetings, Ben. Oh, yeah. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Christmas. Happy Kwanzaa. Whatever you celebrate. Happy nothing. Also... We're glad to have you. A lot of people just binge this podcast and listen to all the episodes at once, you know, on like a long road trip. So this could be, this could be somebody listening in July right now. Yeah. And we're talking about, you know, making snow angels and Chris Kringle and crap. They'll never know the, uh, the holiday ennui (laughs) you and I are, are feeling at the moment. Yeah. That's either months in the past or... Or months in the future for them. Right. Here here for us, it's it's the impending present. <laughs> yeah. I, I pretty much have holiday on we the entire year through. <laughs> you know what I need? Is I need a war on ennui. Yeah. That, that's the that's the that's the war on Christmas adjacent conflict yeah. that I'm into. Well, I think that when people say have a nice day, that's sort of the implication is that they're part of the war on ennui. That's <laughs> the happy holidays of the war on ennui. Yeah. Yeah, truly. Have Verily. you ever heard that thing? Like, I think have a nice day, like, didn't exist before the 80s. Really? Have you heard this? Like, that this is like a very vaguely re- recollected thing, but I was like poking around somewhere on the internet and I stumbled across some like stand-up comedy thing where it was about how a bunch of stand-ups in the 80s had chunks in their sets about how have a nice day was something people say now and how weird mm. that is like like the you know cuz like the the penchant of a stand-up comic is to react negatively against a a, a neologism of any kind you know, I have a theory about this, uh-huh. and that is uh, back to my very first retail jobs, there was a sort of comment that was legislated into your behavior. Like you were graded customer service wise on if you were, if you gave a greeting, like I, I'm trying to remember these off the top of my head. This is 20 years ago, but like greet the customer with a smile, uh-huh. ask them if they need any help, take them directly to the thing that they are asking about. Like if they're asking you where the fucking pickles are, you take them to the pickles. You don't just point. You thank them for coming in at the end and you tell them to have a nice day. Like there's there's a list of things. And we were encouraged to to model that behavior because we were secretly shopped by people who would then grade us. And then our managers would get reports right. that would say stuff like... Uh, you know, Adam did three out of the five things. Uh, the two things he didn't do was greet with a smile because right. uh, he's not a monster. Yeah. And uh, and he said some variation of have a nice day that wasn't exactly have a nice day. It was something like have a good one. Right. Yeah. And yeah, I think- Keep on trucking, I think was your, your common salutation. <laughs> one of the monstrous things that has happened to, uh, to managerial authority in all types of workplace is- the skewing towards things that can only be measured. 
Yeah. Right? Like like you're taking subjectivity out of a manager's arsenal and making them just like check boxes about employees instead of looking at employees like real people. They are they are automatons that either do or do not greet with a smile or say have a nice day at the end. The entire entirely quantified managerial style is so much a product of these like huge companies that are trying to have an extremely ex- consistent experience right. from place to place. But it's also like one of those things that becomes a cudgel wielded by extremely literal minded managers who right. just who who, who if like, you're not a good manager, you fucking love this. Yeah. If you're not a good people person, this is a thing for you. I say have a nice day to people when I'm a customer in line at a thing. Like when I'm when I'm checking out at the grocery store, I say it. But it it really did become like a I'm looking at the there's a Wikipedia article about it and it is and it's like the 70s that it became part of common parlance and like it has like a weird countercultural association like like hippies used to say like like happy day or and and then it like became have a good day and then like saint patrick's day marches there was like a black banner that said p-o-w-m-i-a families never have a nice day which is like wow like i feel like we should have like a like a friendly fire special episode about this because i bet john remembers when people started saying it that's interesting yeah this is a like this kind of programming, the social programming, especially in retail, is something that I really struggle against as a customer because I this is gonna feel very closely tied to the the never do bits on tips philosophy that you and I have as sort of a governing philosophy with being a good person out right. in the world. But like break the script right. is what I would encourage anyone out there to do. Like you're you're entering into a contract socially when you step up to the register with your groceries on the belt that doesn't have to be that way. Right. And you can break it and it's more fun to break it. And and here's the thing, like here's what's fucked up. You're the only one with permission to do that, the customer. Right. So do it. You are you are saving a retail employee's life <laughs> in that in that two minutes, if you can shoot the shit with them like a real person and just, get off script. Just treat them as a peer. Like, yeah, like that's not, all it takes. Just be nice to them and ask them how their day's going. December is a tough fucking month to work with the public. And I really feel for all the friends of DeSoto out there uh, whose job it is to do that. It's yeah. hard. It's hard when your behavior is legislated to such a degree. And I think if you're a friend of DeSoto that is not a retail employee, you have an opportunity to uh, bring a little light to them in yeah. a hard time. Yeah. Shout out to, to everyone that's got a tough job this time of year. I know that that is a lot, a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I didn't expect that <laughs> that intro to get that heavy, but it did. Yeah. These are some intense Star Trek cards, man. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, but kind of an intense episode today also. So I, I think kind of thematically related to our Marin yeah. is, the, uh, is the 19th episode of season five of Deep Space Nine. It's called Ties of Blood and Water. Do you realize that you're 
realize how incredible this is? <laughs> no. Of course you don't. It's a tie you can't really give a, a four in hand to. These are <laughs> these aren't real ties. No. Yeah, these, these are, are family these are, ties. These are clip-on family ties. <laughs> <laughs> the Alex P. Keaton of Deep Space Nine, of course, is Major Kira, right? Oh man, that just went over my head. <laughs> From Family Ties, the oh. show. See, this is this, that's a moment where uh, our age disparity. That really, really is. comes to the fore. Like, uh, it's not too many years, but those are crucial years. I definitely feel like I caught some episodes of that show, but I. Is that the one with Kirk Cameron on it? No, you're you're thinking of uh, Growing Pains. Family Ties was with. Uh, oh, with Michael J. Fox. Michael J. Fox and uh, and Meredith Baxter Bernie, I think. Wow. And uh, these are just from the top of my head. Who's the guy? Michael Gross. Michael Gross is the guy. Damn. And and it had the the font of all family television shows of that era. <laughs> it did. Yeah. It had uh, it had the family serifs. I can't remember how many years I've been married to my wife, but I could remember <laughs> Michael Gross and Meredith Baxter Bernie. <laughs> Fuck me. Wow. I'm such a... God, I'm so fucking dumb. I have an easier time with that because I got married to my wife on July 11th, the same year that the Beyonce song 7-Eleven came out. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so... We played that song at our reception, and if I ever need to look it up, I can just look up the song 7-Eleven and remember. You know, there's a kind of brain trauma where the patient (laughs) can only remember things from a certain span of time and then nothing after. Yeah. And I wonder if that happened to me. I'm I'm not making a joke or making light of this. Like, I'm wondering if, if, if I had, like, a very minor stroke and... It has just made things the, over the last 10 years more difficult to remember than anything in my first 20. You know, I often wonder that working with you day in, day out. Yeah, <laughs> it's concerning. <laughs> well, well, speaking of scary medical <laughs> diagnoses, <laughs> that's what this episode is about. Yeah, uh, Tekeni Gamor is visiting the station, and Kira is... Uh, is putting together a little uh, welcoming party for him in the hallway on Deep Space Nine. Uh, she would like Dax and uh, and Worf to treat to Kenny as a visiting head of state. I think we have a red carpet in storage somewhere. As though that is the level of of importance that he carries, and. Uh, you might be wondering, who is Takeni Gamor? You and I both remember Takeni Gamor from God. How many seasons ago was that? The episode where uh, Major Kira was put into Cardassian loaf and made yeah. to believe that she was his daughter. What was that episode called? Face of the Enemy? No, that's the one where uh, Deanna Troy is in Romulan loaf. In Deep Loaf. That's what it should have been called. <laughs> so gather round as I run it down and unravel my pedigree. That was a fairly traumatic episode for Kira, and it was one that ended with a very paternal relationship, a paternal feeling relationship between Takani Gamor and Kira, and then we never heard from him again until now. Second Skin is the name of the episode. It was season three, episode five. 
one of the few episodes named after condoms. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, that and Magnum were the, are the, are the two. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, we haven't seen the Star Trek Enterprise episode special tingle yet. <laughs> But uh, yeah, yeah, we we may or, never get there. Or the Voyager episode, ribbed for her pleasure. Yeah, it, which is just an episode about the crew uh, doing bits for Captain Janeway. Uh, yeah, many people dislike Star Trek Discovery uh, for the episode Lambskin. <laughs> <laughs> the case that is made, the retcon that is made in this episode, is that Kira and uh, Gamor stayed in very close contact and have a have a relationship akin to a father-daughter relationship. He's practically your father. Your father? Yeah. It's uh like a father-daughter relationship where they live in different cities and only communicate over the phone and like don't see each other on holidays, but <laughs> a, a lot of warmth nonetheless. A ton of warmth. Kira is psyched that he's here. Uh, so much so that she's giving him the the Riker treatment of uh, walking him around the station, taking him to his cabin, showing him where the thermostat and the light switches are. Yeah. Uh, the... She's psyched. And her energy is in relative op- opposition to his fatigue. He is beat from his trip. But, you know, Kira is psyched that he's there for a lot of reasons, one of which is that she feels like he would be interested in participating in opposing the Cardassian regime yeah. politically. There is no one better qualified to lead the opposition. She's suggesting that they turn Deep Space Nine into sort of a World War II London. And yeah. he set up a, a government in exile so that he can run sort of a uh, resistance within the Cardassian Empire while the Dominion is in charge. Does I mean yeah that would mean uh, that would mean that the Goldukat administration is kind of a Vichy Cardassia right yeah yeah because they're they're cucking for the Dominion and she's trying to make a a general Chirac out of Gamor <laughs> <laughs> and he's like ah, I just don't think that kind of hat is very flattering on me what Goldukat does is a war crime <laughs> I am too tired to resist though. <laughs> I'm going to come down for for the rest of the film and just hang out in this chair and not freak out the other people in the theater. I have a terminal illness. <laughs> Don't you feel bad for me? <laughs> Yerim Fell syndrome is what Takeni Kimura's got, and uh, it's fatal. Yeah. It's fatal because uh, Bashir tells us so in the infirmary. There's not much he can do. I wonder if lobotomy's on the table, though, because uh, if you've got a terminal illness, I mean, why not, right? Why not? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, we offer uh, lobotomy as a free upgrade to all services that we uh, charge for here at the at the clinic. Bashir pushes in that tape again. <laughs> the the now well worn. <laughs> Kern tape. If you are watching this, you have been pitched on the idea of having your memory erased. <laughs> I am Kern, compensated endorser. Or am I? I'll never know. <laughs> yeah, sad times. And speaking of sad times, Gamor is, is still looking for the daughter that he thought Kira was. 
uh, all these years later. And uh, she's still not been found. And, uh, and you know, there's some discussion of this, like, you know, if if indeed she is still alive, she's been in deep cover for more than 10 years. And that is not yeah. the easiest kind of person to flush out. No, not at all. In addition to not wanting the uh, the hat, he also does not want the gig of being head of the government in exile, despite being a you know former legate, like a very powerful voice in the Cardassian body politic. I never took his power seriously because of his costuming. He sort of came off as a sweater legate to me, right? <laughs> Like he's not wearing the the body armor of the legates that we've seen before. Yeah, he's, he's, he's got like knitwear, a little Donegal tweed in there. <laughs> he's uh, yeah, he 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 looks hella retired in this getup. <laughs> you, can't, you can't be a legged in tweed. I think that's what we're getting at. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Definitely, he knows his diagnosis, but they rush him to the infirmary when he explains this to Kira and. Uh, and we get a little like uh, Dr. Bashir uh, explaining the the issue to us, the audience scene that Gamora is very kind to treat as though it's news to him. Like, oh, uh-huh. uh, interesting. Well, so what's the prognosis? <laughs> like, right. I, he knows. <laughs> he knows and he's always known. Yeah. I, I guess it's good to get a second opinion. Good to get an opinion of a doctor that isn't the same species as you. <laughs> And probably never studied your species. <laughs> How much time do I have left? I'm not sure. Yeah, good call. Golden The So any episode about the Cardassians has to feature Goldicott, and he is on the scene in short order in the form of a FaceTime he yeah. has with Cisco in his office. He He's- wants to Kenny Gamore extradited back to Cardassia. But since there's no recognition of the Goldicott government, uh it's like what Cisco sort of laughs in the face of this request. Yeah, he, yeah. he can't be taken seriously. He uh, he he says we'll we'll give it some consideration with his tongue so far in his cheek that it looks like he's doing that that blowjob move where you like poke your tongue into your cheek to to simulate the dick. That's what that tongue is doing. Yeah. The tongue is the dick. I like the framing on the FaceTime. Like it's it's Gul Dukat's macbook on his desk and it's yeah. kind of shoot it's it's kind of shooting up so you can see one cardassian and one jim hadar guard like it's great stationed at, on either side of him what do, you, what do you think like if you had like a moral conundrum and a cardassian appeared on one shoulder and a jim hadar on the other what kind of advice do you think you'd be getting <laughs> it's a real like triangulation of evil like <laughs> Like when uh, when W used to do State of the Union and it was like child groping Dennis Haystert on his right shoulder yeah. and uh, and Dick Cheney on the left. Yeah. Like <laughs> a vowed it's, it's, war criminal Dick Cheney on his left. <laughs> it's yeah, it's like as dark as that. There's some discussion of the fact that Ducat has kept the title Gull despite being the supreme leader of all Cardassian political considerations. So much more hands-on than Leggett. Hmm? It's kind of a Lieutenant Colonel Gaddafi type of deal. He thinks it kind of gives him a a man of the people quality and uh, and takes takes an opportunity to take a shot at using the title emissary. I think it's great political building in this scene. And I think 
if you're hating Gold Ducat here, it's effective character building. Yeah. I, like I think this is this is good stuff. And it's efficient too. This is a very short scene. Mm-hmm. If you know Takeni Gamor is suffering from an illness that will kill him in fairly short order, do you hand him a baby? <laughs> <laughs> because that's what Kira does with Yoshi O'Brien, who I guess she occasionally gets to babysit. Yeah. Hands him right over to him, and uh, he barely has the strength to hold him very long. What is the communicability of space syndrome? <laughs> That's a great question, too. 30 steps. It's a billion sick. That part is unclear, and uh, like like any quote-unquote father and quote-unquote daughter, he's asking probing questions about Kira's personal life, like, whatever happened to uh, that Shikar guy? Yeah. Why don't you make a baby with him? Kira is in the is she's in the them blogs, Adam. The yeah. celebrity press keeps track of what Kira is up to. That's kind of a fun reveal, I think. That's wild. They, they kind of Google each other, don't they? Yeah, it's like the time that I uh, I was googling myself and I wrote Benjamin R. Harrison into Google and it tried to autofill wife, and I was mm. like, yee. <laughs> People have been Googling my wife. <laughs> That's fun. Yeah. This is an interesting scene, Ben, because this is the family that Kira has made, right? No one in this room is related. Kira's yeah. got got a dad that isn't her dad and a child that isn't her child. But uh, everyone treats everyone else in this in this room like family. Yeah. And uh and I think Kira is, this is an episode about Kira kind of being a little bit broken in terms of when and where she expresses her affection for someone. And I think she's like maybe a little bit uncomfortable in this moment because he he says that like like as a dying man, he wants to do this Cartesian death rite with her, which is the... The passing on of all of the dirty secrets that you know. He wants to magnolia her, I guess. It's been such a long time since I've seen that movie. I have no idea what that means. Just like deathbed confession. Oh, okay. That kind of deal. Yeah. It's that. Low key, they make a pretty direct comparison between young Yoshi O'Brien's comfort in the exploding electrical pit of ops and... (laughs) Kira's arms. Yeah. Like, because uh, you don't hear a peep out of young Yoshi. Yeah. yeah the, uh, all of the, all of the bits about Yoshi being incapable of chilling out when not in O'Brien or Worf's arms in the last episode, <laughs> non canonical. Right. To be quite honest about it, I was in a pale. Mr. Bucket, I have to revert back to my living state. So Kira meets with Cisco about this ritual. She has some doubts about whether or not she wants to do this. Doubts that Cisco recognizes, but ultimately encourages her to set aside. And this scene is blocked very interestingly. This is another Avery Brooks directed episode, and they really work the depth of field here. And in a way that 
really serves Kira's character. For most of this scene, it is Cisco who is in soft focus, but we're racking back and forth between the two on the focus ring yeah. as they talk, and it's really elegantly done. It's a really cool technique because she's she's kind of pacing like toward and away from the camera in front of his desk. He's behind the desk in the background. Yeah. And when whenever she turns around, they are somehow crashing the focus back to him. Yeah. But when but when her when she's facing the camera, which is most of the scene, the the camera is much more interested in her and that means he will occasionally have three or four lines come out of his mouth where he is just a smudge in the background because the camera is close up on her face. Just to give a little more context to this technique, I mean, what you have here is someone running the camera and then you have marks on the lens that a focus puller is using to go back and forth with. So you're taking a measurement between where Avery Brooks is, marking that on the lens, and then you're measuring the distance that the Navizator is from the lens and you're marking that. Right. And your assistant camera... Uh, if you're lucky enough to have one, I'm I'm guessing that they use an AC here. <laughs> like you've got a camera, you've got a cam up, and then you've got an AC racking the focus, and then you're you're working back and forth. And if if an actor steps out of their mark, I mean this is this is a fairly long unbroken scene, so we're racking back and forth. I think between four and six times. Yeah. If you miss one of those, you got to go back to one and do it again. And that's what makes a sequence like this so challenging. Like you need to nail it every time on the focus. There's a lot of teamwork involved. And I think uh, Nana Visitor is an accomplished enough actor from a technical standpoint that she is, I, I imagine, nailing her mark each time. Like right. you don't see her like looking for the the spike tape on the floor, but like when she gets to the point in the conversation that they've planned ahead will be, you know, where she's standing on mark x like yeah. the focus puller has has something on the lens barrel or something on the on the follow focus that is marked for that spot in the scene and that's a tough job because the focus puller has got to both be paying attention to the dialogue and also the mark on the lens like right. there's a lot going on for that person too it's a it's it's very technically challenging to to make this work and right it's not even always the right thing to do. Like like the way this scene is blocked is is extremely married to the content of the scene. Avery Brooks is one of those directors though that is like uh uniquely interested in an actor's performance and and gives an actor like Nanavizator like a moment to shine like that with yeah. without cutting away. So so a sequence like this is flashy, I feel like, for an Avery Brooks as a director, but it also serves his major goal, which is making an actor shine. Right. She's definitely the thing that you notice the most about the scene. Right. You know, the the weight of of this of this Cardassian death rite is really on her shoulders because it has caused her to think about her own father, uh, her real father, who uh, we actually meet in this in this flashback that we go to. Yeah. Father, can you hear me? We get some some familiar faces from the re- resistance and they're in the Star Trek caves and Kara's dad is brought in on a gurney and uh he's been shot in the belly. This is the long hair edition resistance Kira and he's like coughing up blood and he's trying to sell her western wear. Uh, you all sell socks? Just white. <laughs> 
Is there a resistance Kira action figure? Oh, I don't know. But the actor playing uh, Kira Taban is Thomas Kopachi, who uh, is a Star Trek that guy for sure, but also the uh, the uh, the sales clerk in the uh, Westernware store in No Country for Old Men. I love him so much. Yeah, those Laramies working out for you. That guy's great. <laughs> love him a ton. Yeah, Ben, what is the downside to Kira? You know, sitting down for this. For this thing with Takeni Gamor, are you saying? I mean, are you asking why why she would be conflicted about it? Yes, I am because I think the the episode tells you that it's just that it's because of her unresolved feelings about the death of her own father, but there's none of that in her, in her conversation with Cisco. Like yeah. this is stuff that she keeps to herself. I think that it lets you draw your own conclusions about that, but my feeling was that. The relationship she has with Gamora is so father-daughter adjacent that I thought it it might be partly that she feels like she has sort of erased her own father and replaced him with Gamora, yeah. and that like the the specter of his death has uh, has kind of provoked some feelings of guilt in her about that fact. And it's interesting that she would ask advice from someone that she's also not giving all of that information to. Right. That feels like a little bit of a cheat. Yeah, but also realistic because I don't know that she has, like, in the same way that the episode doesn't totally define her misgivings, I don't know that she has to herself yet. Like, I think that it, it, it all is pretty well defined by the climax of the episode but god you know what that makes it so much better like like in asking the question i'm saying that i'm unsatisfied with her reasonings in the moment but your answer is like she's working it out and processing it she doesn't know right now and that's so much more satisfying than the idea of of her having a fully formed and articulate idea for her misgivings right like at she, this moment she, in time she feels she feels misgivings and doesn't even know why yet and yeah that was sort of how i read it but and that's um, a better read than mine i I was ready to poke holes in it your your read is valid i think like there's there's definitely a way to look at this and say like this conflict isn't actually in the script and and they're just relying on her performance to get it across there's something confidential in that scene with kira and cisco that made me that that like felt superficial Right. I wonder if that's partly because of some of the storytelling techniques that Star Trek occasionally uses. Like sometimes you'll have a character flash into something like this and it's not a memory. They've like gone back in time and suddenly we have to like deal with the fact that they've gone back in time. Yeah. And so you might just be like speculating about what this could mean for too long to to get that it's just her having a quick. A quick That's memory, fair. yeah. I don't know. Anyways, Gamora has gone uh, from being like a tired guy, but a man who's on his feet and and holding babies and stuff, to a man who is on hospice care and passed out on a bio bed in the infirmary. Kira's like, I really shouldn't have handed him my baby. <laughs> <laughs> That was a close call. That was a mistake. <laughs> they really gave him the Starfleet Craftmatic adjustable bed. Yeah. 
It's like a combination, right? Because they still give him the triangle uh, pillow, which is nice. You know, that's probably the kind of pillow he's used to as a Cardassian. You know what? This is costuming kind of wagging the story dog a little bit, because if they had given him the legget armor, he wouldn't have been comfortable in this bed like he is wearing the tweed. Uh, yeah. I wonder if they ever thought of uh, having him show up in the armor and then change into the tweed. I I kind of like that visually. Yeah. That would have as been- As a way to tell that story. Yeah. A, like a little bit more of a bright line between him being- well enough yeah. to be on his feet and being in this bed. Yeah. I can't go out. <laughs> I'm sick. Boo, you whore. There's a crash course in caring for somebody on hospice that Bashir gives to Kira. And then uh, we are into the the tea spilling ceremony. It seems like you've got things from here. I'm going to go play some darts. <laughs> I'm going to go drink four or five ales with Miles and then perhaps shoot down some jerrys over the English Channel. Anyways, ta-ta. Do you think uh, an Arnold Palmer for Dr. Bashir is half ale, half piss? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's like a Rattler, right? Yeah. If it's, if it's ale and piss. Yeah. <laughs> I like a Rattler. I don't want to I don't want to paint a Rattler with that brush. I like an Arnold Palmer, so I don't want you to paint paint that with that brush. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, the tea that he is spilling is uh, is about, you know, who Gul Dukat's political enemies are and, like, what what motivates them and stuff. Spill it, girl. Spill it. The discussion has been had that this is, like, great a great come up for Starfleet intelligence. Like, everybody is going to like having this information. But as Gamora goes through this, uh, Kira flashes back once again to her days in the uh in the final moments of her father's life and uh he's he's on the uh he's on the cot he's struggling against the the pain of his injury and uh talking about what brutal assholes the cardassians are how they uh they burned their their garden set fire to their town i tried to talk to them to reason with them look what they've done to me you never burn a bajoran's garden that's no. the last straw yeah like the only thing worse than that would be blowing up their pizza oven, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Very strong feelings about pizza and gardens. Yeah. For really, for uh, people that have as many beautiful pizza ovens as they have, they never make pizza. You never you always see them eating hasperat, never pizza. Yeah. I don't understand it. Do you think Bajorans go for a thin crust? Or like a like a, a breadier pizza, or do they do like a deep dish? Hmm. If I had to guess, if Bajorans are Chicago style or thin crust, I'm thinking I'm going to guess thin crust. Yeah, because they have like spring wine and like, like I feel like I feel like their food is is pretty light. I feel the same way. I feel like Cardassians are heavy food people. Yeah, yeah, meat and potato Cardassians and uh, and more like uh, Mediterranean right Bajorans. 
Yeah. I'm going to make them pay for this. I promise you. So these interviews are given to us in kind of montage form. We never hear a story beginning to end. Yeah. From Gamore, it's it's really like these these flashes and snippets of things he was involved in. The information is not actually like germane for our purposes. No, not at all. Which it's, is nice if you're a writer. It's just that it, there is a great volume to it and like and like Cisco is like psyched, you know, like on You mostly of- see it on Kira's face like like that it's hard to get a grasp of of time passing just by listening to him talk, what you, how you experience it is through Kira, who's growing more and more fatigued by right. going through it. And she says like she's been up for 30 hours, which is not really like the way of people who are on death's door in my experience. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. when my uncle was, was dying a couple of years ago, like you would get like 15 minutes at a time and then he would like drift off to sleep for a while. I mean, we know Kira cares for this guy a lot but a part of her has to be wanting to grab that triangular pillow to, to give him a good smother <laughs> right what's one more Cardassian body to her yeah that barely moves the needle she's working round the clock to gather this intel and also unburden him of all his secrets uh, and uh, we get a, a great shot of a of a super tick pulling up to Deep Space Nine and Cisco gets up to the uh, to the ops section on on the elevator, and he's like, "What's going on?" Status report. And they're like, "Oh, uh, yeah, actually, Super Tick just pulled up." <laughs> like when he when he walks into ops and says status report, how often is that the answer? <laughs> they the Super Tick is so large, and it's coming from Cardassia. Like they saw it coming, right? Right. The, like it being within weapons range should not be a surprise to everyone. <laughs> this is what long range sensors are for. Yeah. Not a good look. Although after some of the dirty tricks of the Dominion takeover of Cardassia, yeah. you could forgive them for not always believing their sensor readings, I guess. Ducat's there because he's like, so about that request. <laughs> you said you would give it some consideration. I was really excited to hear that. And uh, just uh, following up on that. Yeah. It's great. And so it's he and Wayun who have transported over to the station and they take a meeting in Cisco's office. This is a great Wayun episode, I think. Yeah. He just seems like like he is involved big time. You know he's this he's pulling the strings on Ducat, but he is playing it as though he's totally detached and kind of watching things happen around him with a with a level of bemusement that yeah. is a lot of fun. Like he doesn't actually give a shit how any of it resolves. Yeah, and even Cisco's like, I watched you die, man. Why are you here? And he's like, no, I mean, I've been cloned five times. It's uh, it's actually not a big deal to die if you're me. Yeah. And it's put that casually. It tends to mitigate the risk involved in so much of our work. I don't think that we had that information about the Vorta up until now, but it, like, it yeah. means that any Vorta we've met, we could meet again. It's sort of that technology where... You know, in a bar fight, the person you want to be concerned about is the one that is not the one staring super scarily at you. It's the one that's like cool and casual. (laughs) That is the one you need to worry about because they've been through it a billion times and it's not scary to them. That's what Wei Yun is like. He's he's so casual. He's scary. 
everything is water off a duck's back to him. Yeah, when there are no stakes to a person, that makes them totally free. Freedom calls a buckle So Dukat is basically saying like, hey, we are really interested in extraditing Gamore. And by extraditing, I mean in, uh, inviting him to retire to the comfort of Cardassia because the... Uh, we have a whole new system of jurisprudence on Cardassia introduced by the Dominion, and uh, you know, like true to their reputation as uh, as as fair and reasonable people, our uh, our new justice system has big improvements and has cleared Gamor's name entirely. This whole situation has cured the Yaramfell syndrome because in this scene, <laughs> Takeni Gamor is is full of vim and vigor. <laughs> Man, He's pissed. That's so weird. I really, I literally have a note that says Gamor suddenly full of vim when Ducat shows up. Yeah, he's cured. We both use the term vim. Yeah. He was very vigorous, father. Yeah, in a way that has to kind of low-key irritate Bashir a little bit because he's <laughs> filling him full of drugs and none of the drugs have worked as good as Ducat. No, yeah, Ducat, Ducat is a, a real panacea. Ducat, only with a prescription. <laughs> Common side effects of Ducat include sleeplessness, headache, fatigue, dry mouth, strained muscles from eye rolling, stomach ache, nausea, vomiting, pubic lice, strained trapezius, swelling, redness, grayness, fecal popcorning, despotism, despondency, diarrhea, bloating, belching, felching. If you have an erection that lasts longer than four hours, seek immediate medical help. That makes the price too high. Ask your doctor if Ducat is right for you. Gamora is not interested in playing this kind of ball with them, even when the idea of... His daughter is produced by Ducat. Like, not even that is interesting enough for him to play ball because Gamora knows he's going to be dead soon. Yeah. So he turns them down. Morn, 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 sweet morn, morn, morn. You need everybody. Morn, stop. Hammer time. We get another little montage of Kira taking care of him and uh, and taking his confession. And then uh, an exhausted moment of Kira in Quark's bar, where Quark is uh, offering her a long list of beverages, and she's basically just ignoring him until he offers to bring her like a glass of warm milk. Yeah, Quark does that pivot where he's initially a dick, yeah, and then uh, and then finally, finally does something nice. It's these moments that like you know Quark is playing into his own self-image and then reveals that he has a heart. You look terrible. Not that I mind. I like my women a little rumpled. I feel like half the writer's room really want that to be the deal with Cork is that he talks a big game about being a terrible person, but in reality has a heart of gold. And the other half the writer's room is like, no, he's just a terrible person. <laughs> yeah, you really do feel that tension. It, They're trying to figure out like what, the line is for lovable scoundrel. Right. What's the limit there? Yeah. I don't think we know. No either. Kira passes out in her apartment and is awakened by Ducat kind of barging in. And he's he's trying to make the the same pitch to her that he did originally to Gamora, like, you know, maybe try and talk him into to coming back with us. And uh, she's like, hey, why don't you fuck off? And he's like, well, like, you know, there's some things about him that you might not realize. Like, for example, Kiesa Monastery. Have you ever considered what role he might have played in that? She's like, oh, that historical massacre that uh, was very terrible. 
And he's like, yes, I'll just leave this right here. And he uh, sets an iPad down on her table and walks out of the room. She fucking nails him with a teacup like that police chief in The Big Lebowski. Ow! Fucking fascist! I couldn't tell if she hit him or the wall just behind him. Because he like, his head moves so quickly that I couldn't tell if it like actually was supposed to connect with his face. I think his head goes back and to the left <laughs> to the extent that I think he sells the idea that he was hit with it. Wow. It's a great scene. I love how how Kira shifts gears in the span of 10 seconds. She is sarcastic and biting and then fucking angry. I would love to see somebody just go through this frame by frame and see if we can see if we can get to the bottom of whether this actually lands. <laughs> Yeah. Because uh, teacup as a missile is a pretty intense move, yeah. and very and very Kira. Like nice to see her in her pizza oven destroying shirt for this moment. Yeah, it's the right garment for the moment. <laughs> Kira can't help but read this report, and then she confronts Gamor in the next scene about this massacre, and he admits to it, and also says that. It was war, and he was young, but that does not satisfy Kira. She is pissed. Yeah, pissed to the extent that she doesn't think she can forgive him for having been a part of it. The more I learn about that guy, the more I don't care for him. And he's like, listen, if I could go back to before my frontal lobe had developed and not enlisted in the Cardassian military and not like volunteered for service on Bajor, I would. But here I am, like a dying old man, full of regrets, and I'm telling you, like, that's not me now. And she's like, fuck you, and storms out of the room. Yeah. I didn't want you to hate me. It's what you deserve. We get a fun interstitial scene at Quark's where Wayun is enjoying Dabo, and Sisko invites he and Golducat to have some canar with him at a table nearby. Not the friendliest invitation, because... Sisko only has one glass, which means they're not going to be drinking together. He's just pouring a glass for Gul Dukat. And uh, he shoves this glass over at him, and Gul's, Gul Dukat is like, no, I I never drink that stuff before 5 p.m. or whatever. You drinking the witch after dinner? No plan. Despite the fact that he's got like a great big champagne flute in his hand. It ends up that the bottle of Canar has been poisoned because the station received a shipment of poison bottles of Canar for Gamor. And my question for you is, would Cisco have allowed Goldicott to drink from that bottle? How far would he have allowed this to go? Wow. Yeah. Like, how does it look on your service record when as captain of Steep, of Deep Space Nine, you poured a glass of poison for the head of a hostile alien government. <laughs> it, it's he almost princess brides called Dukat here, right? Yeah. yeah they it's... walk right up to that moment, but they don't really they don't really go all the way. Are there rocks ahead? If they are, we all be dead. Gul Dukat never admits anything, but uh but then Wei Yun is like having such fun that he reaches for the glass, chugs it to the dome. Oh my that is quite toxic, isn't it? Look, man, we know the Dominion are bad people, but <laughs> I I aspire to live my life with the way that Weon is. Yeah. He is he is having the most fun in this episode. He really is. This is like uh 
Wei Yun in this episode is like me at our uh, our recent Boston live show where uh, you abandoned me on stage to go to the bathroom yeah. and I chugged all of the wine that was left on stage, which was like kind of a lot. <laughs> you sure did. I came back to nothing. Yeah. Nothing was, to drink. I was a mess after that. Yeah, you sure were. You, you gave the people what they wanted. You really want to do this here now? Okay, okay, let's do it. Do you know what else is a mess, Adam, is uh, Major Kira. Such a mess that she has to go to Temple and uh, see if she can get some, some comfort from the prophets. And uh, I, don't think, I don't think she really can. But Odo is there to almost taunt her when she comes out. You got something to say to me, Constable? Say it. Like, I don't know if he's pursuing a new strategy in his attempt to woo her, but, like, nagging somebody who is having a spiritual crisis is probably not the best way to cause them to land in your arms. I, I don't get this angle by him. This this feels like Odo ex machina a little bit. I don't understand his motivation for encouraging Kira to forgive. Like... Odo lived on that station a long, long time under the thumb of evil Cardassians, and it's not like Odo has come to grips with that experience in a way that has allowed him to forgive the many things that happened during wartime. Like, has he had his epiphany on screen, to our knowledge? I don't know. His argument is that uh, Gamora was 19 when this when this massacre went down, so, like, he can't have been senior enough to or have ordered it or and we don't know the extent to which he was a you know a willing participant and he was young even... dumb and full of canar <laughs> right i don't know like he, he's he's sort of arguing like war war makes people of all kinds make pretty terrible decisions and that's sort of like meant to imply that Perhaps Major Kira made some terrible decisions of her own when she was in the Resistance. Regards. Thus provoking another flashback. And this one is the one where her dad is really in the throes of uh, suffering from his phaser wound. And in instead of like being there with him for th these last moments of his life, she uh, she like gets together a crew of resistance fighters to go who ride on some Cardassians for Rewenge. What does it mean? It means Omerta. It means Rewenge. And by the time she gets back, her father's died in her absence. Right. And uh, this is where I think the rubber meets the road for my theory about why these memories are coming up and complicating her feelings about Gamor is that the guilt of having missed that has weighed on her forever and now she has a very compelling reason to ignore and disconnect from Gamor but he's kind of an opportunity to seek some redemption for her past sins Bashir really applies the leverage to the situation by saying no one should have to die alone in encouraging Kira to, to be at his bedside. Why does this get said as often as it does? Ben, you hear all the time about uh, people close to death will have family members at their bedside like almost 24-7. And like the moment they leave to go get coffee, 
like in that five minute span, the relative will have died. They like, like do you saw think that, that the that's coast true? was clear and they snuck out. <laughs> no, I mean, you know what I mean, right? Like, like it almost like an instinct to a human being is to die alone. Almost. It's definitely an instinct to animals, right? Like, yeah, your cat sneaks off and passes away or whatever. I wonder why we've all agreed to this being the truth, because it sure seems like there's evidence to the contrary, you know? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I think it's just about comfort for the remaining people, right? That's why we say it, because we need something to do as as uh, as those that will live on, right? Yeah. You can't take it with you, Adam. Sure can't. I think that the other part of this episode that is unspoken is the way that Kira has kind of worked her way back toward being friends with Odo, despite this stuff that she knows about how he comported himself under Cardassian rule. Yeah. If she can convince, if she can come around on Odo, uh, she can possibly come around on Gamor and in the wake of remembering like returning to her resistance caves and finding that her dad passed away, she comes back and uh, sits at Gamor's bedside as he shuffles loose this mortal coil. And it's, uh, and it's like, we don't actually see the moment of his passing. Uh, we get a, uh, a, a very long monologue uh, from her uh, just talking to Dr. Bashir in the infirmary about what those last moments between her and Gamora were like. It's an example of telling and not showing that actually works in telling's favor when you've got Nana Visitor doing the lines. Yep. It's better this way. It's better this way. It's like it's like the camera doesn't cut away that much. It's it's mostly done in a pretty close single on her and you know once or twice you know she'll glance at Bashir and it'll give us a Bashir react but uh you know there's not there's not much to that side of the story like mostly this is a tearful uh description of uh the death of a father figure and she's you know she's feeling it in that way I think it's crucial that she does not achieve catharsis, you know, like this doesn't fix the situation she had with her real father. It's just as painful to go through the death of someone close to her this time around. Right. It doesn't undo what happened between her and her biological father. Right. She's pretty shattered. And Bashir, to his credit, says a few comforting words, but... You know, it's it's one of those things that is not, you know, you're not that able to be comforted in a moment like this. And and also, I feel like that would be out of character for him to try. Like he treats the moment fairly administrative. I mean, he's supportive of her, but he's not going to sit next to her and hold her. Right. That's just not his way. I thought a lot about that, like the fact that this is a a couple, like in real life, in this moment. Wow, yeah, and like that's the, true. The level of emotion that they're going through. I wonder if I wonder if as actors who have embarked on a relationship with each other, they do some aftercare after a scene like this. 
I wonder how hard Alexander Siddig struggled against his own, like he's seeing his wife experience this trauma in front of him. There's something inside you that is, that I feel like is uh, instinctually trying to reach out and help in a way that your character can't. And that's got to be such a struggle. When you're accessing feelings like the ones that Nana Visitor is accessing in this scene, like the feelings are real while you're while you're bringing them up. Like right. even if it's for a fictional reason, like the you know, like like it's it, you're running a simulation of having that experience, and you're and it has the same like physical ramifications in a lot of ways. Yeah. So tough the button on the episode is in the aftermath Dukat and Wayun meet up with Cisco in his office and they've heard about Gamor's death Gold Dukat is like you killed Takeni you bastards oh my God. <laughs> Dukat is going to use this moment for his own ends. He's like, I'm going to go back to Cardassia and tell everyone that on his deathbed, Gamor supports the Dominion. Right. And uh, and there's really not anything Cisco can do about it. Well, the one thing that he can do is withhold the body, right? Because yeah. like Dukat wants to make some some political theater of a of a, you know, like full military honors as uh and a you know prime time state funeral for yeah. Gamora and that is not the the burial that uh that Gamora is going to get and instead it is a very private funeral service for one yeah at a grave that Kira digs herself on Bajor and it's a plot right next to her real father we know this because it's that same tree that we saw in the flashback where uh where she buried her father before. Yeah, but the uh, it's a different season. The uh, yeah. the the scene is very lush in a way that it was not in the in the flashback. And uh, I guess that's also like sort of metaphorical for how far Bajor has come since the Resistance era. God, Kira digs a great looking grave. Yeah, it Real is like clean. a Japanese garden style like pattern in the in the dirt. Yeah. Really well done. Very nice. She gives great grave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's the note we end on. Did you like the episode, Ben? I did. I think that I had a little problem with how uh, how retconny the relationship felt between Kira and Gamora and how I, I didn't quite get man who's about to be on death's door from him when he first showed up mm. like i was like oh yeah like he didn't t- cough into a handkerchief and look at it and there's like a red spot right like tired from a flight proceeding to you know on a gurney with a with an iv in five minutes time uh felt very sudden to me and that that was a struggle for me with this episode but uh any any episode that uh gives Major Kira, a big emotional arc to go through is always going to be satisfying because you've got an incredibly capable actor delivering that experience. And all of the emotion of that was uh, really real to me and really uh, well drawn. So if 
we reshoot the scene where Takeni Gamora arrives on the station, uh-huh. and instead of wanting to go to his quarters for a nap, he kind of staggers into Worf and Dax's arms. <laughs> uh, is that a more effective way to begin his I, illness story? I think you need something like that, like something like uh, the transport is coming in. They're they're expecting him, but they get word ahead of time that there's been a medical emergency in flight and uh and like they they're gonna need to like get him right to the infirmary or something you know something like that and then also like two episodes in between seasons three episode five and season five episode 19 continuing the idea that she and gamor are dear to each other yeah, they almost cop to the idea that they're not writing each other and they're not doing FaceTime. They're just Google snooping <laughs> each other. Yeah. Which uh, is a bad way to maintain a relationship. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are, there are some holes here, as you say, but I mean, give me Avery Brooks directing The Na Visitor and that's that's all I need, I think. She mm-hmm. gets she gets two centerpiece scenes all to herself, basically. And uh, that makes for a good episode in my book. So I'll leave it at that. Well, do you want to see if we have any Priority One messages? Yeah. Priority One message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Need a supplemental income. Supplemental income? Supplemental. Supplemental. Yeah, it's extra. But the interest alone could be enough to buy this ship. Adam, we have a couple of Priority One messages here. Uh, the first one is from Yoli, and it's to Sam. It goes like this. Shmooly, we're getting married. Or maybe we already got married, depending on when Ben and Adam read this. I'm spending $138 Canadian just to tell you that you're <laughs> my heartbeat. Your pa is strong. I'm down for some Jamaharone. You better watch out. As Vic Fontaine says, the best is yet to come. Come the day you're mine. Wow. (laughs) Really calling a shot with with who's coming and when, huh? Yeah. Congratulations on uh, your impending and or recent nuptials, Shmooly and Yoli. That's great. Making it work. Yeah. See, it's not all bad out there. I love that. Yeah. Ben, our second priority one message comes from Clayton. (laughs) And it's for Nicole. (laughs) I'm saying it that way because both of those names have exclamation points. Oh, yeah. The message goes like this. I love you, Nicole. And we both love this podcast. See, there's exclamation points throughout. I'm trying to get at that read. Uh, Do you think that exclamation points are the same thing as all caps? Oh, is that what I'm doing? Am I doing a bad read? I don't know. I'm just, I'm I'm scratching my head here because I've never screamed a a sentence that has an exclamation point at the end. You know what? I'm going to take it down to a seven. (laughs) Like in reading this message, I think that's that's the sincerity it's asking for. Okay. Here we go. I'm going to start over, right? Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take your time. I love you, Nicole. And we both love this podcast. We're probably listening to it right now. Ben and Adam are really funny, and you, Nicole, are the best. Merry Christmas, happy birthday, or happy just whatever day this comes out. 
Wow. I love you so much. You're the best wife. Also, thanks Ben and Adam for doing the show and reading my message. Big fan! Wow. I had thought previously that my wife was the best wife, but it turns out Nicole is the best wife. Yeah, that's it. (sighs) Clayton really showed us. Jeez. Kind of threw it in our faces, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, I feel feel a little bit (laughs) wife-shamed. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, pretty rough. I mean, it, it would be our way... To experience the joy of another person's relationship as an attack on our own. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, Nicole and Clayton, it sounds like you two also found great people to be betrothed to. Couple of uh, couple of happy couples in the pew on section today, Adam. If you'd like to declare your undying love for someone out there, you know what to do. You head to maximumfun.org/jumbotron. It's 100 bucks for a personal message and 200 for a commercial message. And they are both great ways to support the production of this program. Gotta get that, get that gold press action. Boy, do I love a microdose gummy from Lumi Labs. I'm, uh, I'm running low, so I'm going to head over to microdose.com pretty soon and put in another order. Microdosing is a technique I use to steer my mentals in a preferred direction several times a week. And uh, I just love it because you can really predict what is going to happen and to what degree it is going to happen. Because these are very low-dose cannabis gummies that uh, give you an entry-level dose that help you feel just the right amount of good. And they've been super loyal as sponsors to Greatest Trek and Greatest Gen, so I hope you will give them a try. Get 30% off your first order, plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code SCARVES. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code is SCARVES for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code SCARVES. One of the amazing things about making The Greatest Generation is getting to see all of the cool, creative stuff that the Friends of DeSoto make when we do a Code 47 episode. People send in handcrafted stuff all the time, and they send in their books, they send in paintings, they send in uh, crochet work. It's so cool. And uh, I want a few more of you to have websites to direct us to in those letters. I want you to put your beautiful work on display for the world so that when we get to look at it, we can tell people where to go to get a look at it themselves. And you don't have to know anything about building a website to build a website these days because you can use Squarespace. It'll look beautiful no matter what kind of device people are looking at it on. Hell, you can even sell stuff using a Squarespace website. Don't make your cool, creative project captain's eyes only. Head to squarespace.com slash scarves for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code SCARVES to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. 
The episodes will be amazing and wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org slash newsletter so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. Hey, Adam. What's that, Ben? Did you find yourself... A drunk Wayun. Drunk Shimoda. Yeah, I think uh, you see my drunk Wayun, who's not Wayun. He's a drunk Shimoda, Ben. Oh, how delightful. In the FaceTime that Dukat has with Cisco very early on, there's a moment where uh, Cisco calls Dukat a Dominion puppet. Yeah. And the Dennis Haystert. Cardassian over his right shoulder just gives a stare down to the Demhadar <laughs> over his left shoulder and like locks into him for the remainder of the conversation in a way that is great. Like <laughs> that is a choice that I really love. Yeah. Like you know what that guy's feeling and yeah. he doesn't like to be called a puppet, that guy no. in the back. He takes great umbrage with that. No puppet. No puppet. You're the puppet. Yeah. What about you, Ben? It's Wei Yoon. Yeah. Wei I mean, Yoon for drinking poison. Speaking of uh, working the puppet, you could just, <laughs> he's fucking elbow deep in Ducat this whole episode. Yeah. But also clearly doesn't really care what happens with any of this. Like, it's kind of immaterial to him. He's kind of humoring Ducat in this moment and definitely the character that's having the most fun in the episode. The stakes for it's weird that everyone else is experiencing extremely high stakes except for Wayun. Yeah. Right? Like it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Like like this episode would work if they hadn't written him back into it. Like we wouldn't be like, ah, I feel like there was something missing without him. Yeah. But he adds to it. I hope we get a lot more Wayun in the seasons ahead because he adds a spice to the episodes now that I've really like, I want that flavor more and more. (laughs) I want that detached character commenting and sniping at people. Like Wayun has basically touched the Mario star. Like he's, he's fine. Doesn't matter. Yeah. And he makes everyone look silly in proximity. Lightens the mood. Well, a couple of good Shimoda's there, Ben. Yeah. You want to uh, talk about what we're going to be doing next and how we will be doing it? Well, the only way to do that is for you to tell me about that episode and then for both of us to consult the game of buttholes... 
Will of the Prophets. Yeah, that's true. Uh, well, the next episode is season five, episode 20, Ferengi Love Songs. Another Quark episode, Adam. Quark sacrifices his mother's happiness in order to regain his standing in Ferengi society. The return of Moogie. Yeah. Currently, our little runabout is pulsing on square 57, where uh, several squares ahead, we've got a space butthole that would drop us all the way down to square 18. That would be quite a tumble. That would. You're required to learn as you play. Roll. Let's see if we hit it. Oh, I hit it. Whoa, shit. <laughs> we are all the way back down to square 18. Drink! It's the antidote! Wow. Quark's bar episode. Yeah. God damn. How about that? Uh, we are going to, boy, not quite start the new year doing a Quark's bar. We're, we're going to do Quark's bar, then New Year's Eve. Wow. Is how, uh, is how Greatest Gen is going to go into the year 2020. <laughs> We're gonna uh, we're gonna wake up in the new year with a bad hangover. I predict. Yeah. Take your brood. Fuck. <laughs> yeah. Well, we want to wish a happy new year and a happy holiday season to a lot of friends of Desoto. Maybe most of all those uh, those who we unwrap the gift from every month. Those that go to maximumfund.org/slash/donate. They keep and- our show going. Indeed. Uh, we also got to thank our buddy Bill Tilly, who makes collectible trading cards out of every episode. They delight me. Every every week he puts out new trading cards uh, using the hashtag GreatestGen on Twitter, and it's, uh, it is always a highlight of my week. I, I laugh at, at the funny pictures he finds from the episodes and the quotes that he pulls from our show. It's just fucking great. Adam Ragusea is a great teacher. He's great at music because he is responsible for the music of our show using a lot of the source music material from Dark Materia. But he is also one of the finest foodsmen in the game. You think his holiday meals are, are pretty good this time of year? I bet they are. Oh yeah, he's uh, he's given all these like all these turkey cooking lessons and stuff on YouTube. He's got a he's got a smash hit YouTube channel, Adam. You know what Adam Ragusi is doing? He's putting nutmeg in the glass and then adding the eggnog. <laughs> That's what he does. We got to uh, thank uh, the great folks at MaximumFun.org who are all instrumental in helping us get this show out there. And thanks to everyone that leaves us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or their podcatcher of choice. And with that, we'll be back at you next time with another great episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine and an episode of The Greatest Generation Deep Space Nine, which is pre-Funkin'. dot org.
Comedy and culture. Artist owned, audience supported.